0: Oregon Behavior Consultation is a state-approved behavior consultation company in Oregon. Nate Sheets is not a therapist, and you should always check with your child's therapist or team before implementing any suggestions or ideas that you get from this podcast. Everyone is different, and so not all suggestions will work or be appropriate for everyone. Welcome to It's a Brain Thing, a podcast where we explore the various aspects of life for people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and the people who support them. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Jill Snell. Hi. Hi, Jill. Hi. So if you guys have been listening to the podcast, you may have noticed that we've never had a co-host before. So this will be our introduction to Jill. And today, overall, we're going to be talking about the neurobehavioral model of understanding challenging behaviors. Um, And so we hope that you find it interesting. So Jill, why don't you introduce yourself to all the listeners? How do we know each other? What's your connection with FASD?
1: Hi. Hi, guys. I'm Jill Snell, like Nate said. Um, I met Nate back in January when we moved to his town. Um, We have three kiddos. uh, Our oldest, who we adopted um, at birth, she has fetal alcohol, spectrum disorder, and then we have two uh, biological babies underneath her. Um, And when we moved to this new town, we were in desperate need of a fabulous... um,
0: Behavior consultant,
1: behavioral consultant, um, and we found Nate through a training, and then I stalked him, and forced him to work with us, and it has been fabulous ever since.
0: Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so force is a kind of a strong word. It's just kind of, <laughs> you referred her just like everybody else. Sure, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So. You know, I asked Jill to start joining me for the podcast because I think it's really valuable to have a parent voice, you know, in a lot of these conversations. So, a lot of people um, I know have given me feedback that they appreciate all the suggestions that I give. And so now I think we can combine those suggestions with how do these actually play out. Um, Some people occasionally ask me, Do I have any children? The answer is no, I don't have any children. I'm yet another single social worker, you know, trying to. Uh, you know, provide support. So um, hopefully you guys will all um, benefit from Jill's experience. So let's talk about the neurobehavioral model. Do you know what the neurobehavioral model is?
1: It's what you do best, Nate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So the neurobehavioral model, yeah, it's kind of the philosophy and just the the change in thinking about behaviors. And it was developed over a long period of time by Diane Malbin. She has uh, now a lot of different trainings. We're going to put links to all of her stuff, by the way, in the notes. So if you haven't already read her book, which we'll bring up here, Um, or if you haven't been to her website or done a workshop with Diane Malbin, absolutely essential if you can do that. Um, And then now she has um, various other people, some of whom we're going to be interviewing soon, um, who also do the same kind of training. So neurobehavioral model is understanding what is contributing to a person's behaviors. And so neuro, of course, means brain and behavioral are the behaviors. So we're going to ask ourselves, you know, what are the brain things that contribute to behavior? Sometimes children with FASDs, um, so FASD is the overall term for all of these different disorders. Sometimes they're given a actual diagnosis of neurobehavioral disorder, you know, associated with prenatal exposure. So what that means is based upon the criteria that a di- you know somebody diagnosing would use, they would give that term to say, well, it's probably alcohol, or alcohol is a part of this, but there could be other things. And of course, as we tend to see with our kids, a lot of whom have been through trauma, they have mental health issues, you know, it's not just fetal alcohol impacting these behaviors. So but all that to say, brain and behavior. We're going to try to ask ourselves what could be going on in this person's brain, either fetal alcohol or really any other factor, and how do we then provide support? So you've started, you know, I mean, you've been doing it for a long time, but you've really started to embrace this idea of the neurobehavioral model. Can you talk a little bit about you know, how that shift in thinking has helped you and yeah, your family.
1: Absolutely. So it was the first book we ever bought was Diane Malvins when we found out Quinny had fetal alcohol and she was 18 months old. Yeah, um,
0: trying we, differently rather than hard. Yeah, yeah. So
1: good. And that, that phrase alone has been a huge um, platform for our family and how we parent and, and how we um, view not only our oldest uh, behavior, but all our kids, our other two kids. Um, but what what it did is it gave us a really strong foundation of just to look beyond the behavior and to see it as a symptom. Mm-hmm. Something's not right in her world. And I think it was really easy relatively when she was a toddler. And then when she was preschool and kindergarten, it was because a lot of the harder behaviors, they were easier to decode. It was like one step or two step to getting to the problem. And as she's been, in, as she has been getting older, she's nine now, um, it's become a lot more complicated and that's where working with you, Nate, has, um, been instrumental in, um, getting just a better, a, a thicker, I suppose, a thicker foundation of the brain and how it works and how it functions on different levels, um, yeah. to really help decode all of her behaviors. Yeah. But it's been amazing. It's been, it helps us see our Quinn. We are, it. Allows us to see behaviors in one pile, Quinny in another pile. And whenever we have days that we have more behaviors and it's tipping the scale, then we have our Quinny and her joy and her spirit. That's when I know I, as her mom, have to make adjustments. I'm the one that's going to have to pull up the ranks because that's that's the person that's got the juice for the day. And so whenever – um Yeah. Wait, take that part out. Yeah. So it's um yeah, it's been this really great tool for us to evaluate her every day, and um since every day is so different.
0: Yeah, and so what we tend to find, you know, it can be difficult for people to change this way of thinking. We're gonna go through various aspects in a few minutes. It still
1: is difficult. Yes,
0: and but once you do, it it opens up things because it actually gives you a bunch of solutions to certain behaviors that get you going in a direction versus, you know, assuming that behaviors are intentional, you know, misbehaviors that they could just stop if they tried harder, you know, that doesn't, you know, there's not much we can do for that is what I say. So, um, Nate, may I I interject here? I
1: think like we just came back from a, um, a weekend of camping with a bunch of my friends, no other special ed kid there, no other special need kid there. And, um, what I was confronted with, and I think this is a really important point, is that we can practice a lot of these things in our the safety of our own home, mm-hmm. but really being mindful of this method when we're out in the community when our nine-year-old's having three-year-old typical behaviors and no one else can see what's going on with her and you don't want to necessarily go to every single person at the party or at the campground saying... Fetal alcohol, empathy, right, yeah. please. Um, it's really important to be mindful and to be confident in your own strategies and in this strategies so that you can carry on consistently in your home and in that safety and then in the vulnerability of, of our community.
0: Yeah. And it's difficult. I mean, just this week alone. So there is a great Facebook group. Um, I highly recommend it's called towards a uh, or it's called shifting the paradigm towards a neurobehavior model. Um, or something very similar. I apologize if I get the name slightly wrong, but we're going to link to it in the notes of this episode. And frankly, I probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast right now are probably already a part of that group. Mm-hmm. But I I like the group because you know parents are free to talk about the difficulties of you know how do we approach this with other people. So there are constantly situations that you're reading about, um, both positive and you know negative, and people needing support. You know just. You know, I'm doing, you know, they might say, I'm doing this, but my husband isn't, or I'm doing this, but all of my extended family think I'm crazy, or I'm doing this, but the neighbors don't get it. And it can be difficult um, to implement in, just in that way alone. Um, you know, we, we want to respond in the best way. So, yeah. you know, some ways that, let's talk about some ways that it differs from other parenting models. You know, most of us were raised with punishments, you know, and the idea behind punishments is that, If you punish somebody, that will reduce the chances of the behavior happening again, Um, which makes sense in theory. It's kind of that common sense thing. But research doesn't show that Um, research shows, you know, either ineffectiveness or actually the opposite of what you want and reinforcement, which you also have to be careful with to a certain extent, is a lot more effective. So with the neurobehavioral model, we essentially are taking every punishment away and. By punishment, there I mean it's kind of that imposed. We're doing it because uh, we don't want them to do the behavior again. And the reason when I say we're taking it away, it doesn't mean that there's never any natural. There's never not any natural consequences. And it doesn't mean that we don't ever hold them accountable. But it, we ask ourselves before we use that punishment: Is this going to help with that underlying brain issue? And when you ask that question with punishments or a lot of other interventions oftentimes the answer is no it doesn't do much other than you know tell the kid you better not do that again you better try harder but trying harder doesn't work for them Um, and so then by not using those punishments we have to then come up with other alternatives so um, it can be difficult
1: Super difficult. <laughs> Super difficult. Yeah. yeah, I mean,
0: and oftentimes I find the impulses of parents is yeah. to punish. Like you, we are often engaging in punishment behaviors with us not even thinking about it. Um, well, and I
1: feel like that's an anxiety. I feel, and I think, a, I think a standard in a lot of parents that parent FASD kids. We, I think, it's human nature to be able to control our young. Right, that word control. And if we have a lack of control, when the rest of the world appears to have more control over their children. And it's, it's, it's not in a, in an ideal of, of of a a negative control. It's in a sense of we're teaching, we're, we're fostering, we're guiding our children. and, And when, a kiddo's going astray, no matter how hard we're working, we're going to have this natural anxiety of we are not good enough, we're not doing it right. And the yeah. more it's not working, the harder we're trying and that escalation of in our own self on a daily basis is just exploding out of our souls and we're desperate. We feel that desperation to just make it better. Right. And I think that's what drives a lot of that. Um, a lot of the situations and a lot of our own parenting behaviors is desperation to yeah. just make it better, so
0: that can lead to that impulse and punishment, yeah, you just don 't know what else to do sometimes,
1: yeah,
0: um, and yeah there's just it's not a lot of thinking going on there right. so and so why don't punishments work? well, punishments you know when we think of this cognitive skills of a person with f a s d generally you know, if you punish them, you're assuming that they will hold that information in their brain for hours or days or even weeks. And then the next time they're in a situation where they need to remember that punishment, so they don't do that, you're assuming that that information will pop up in their brain as everything's unfolding. And we know they struggle with processing. And Somehow, give them the tools they need to make a different choice. And that is just unrealistic. And frankly, it's unrealistic for most kids. Um, And so that's why punishments, in my opinion, don't tend to work. Same thing with those rewards, reward systems. They, you know, if you just bribe, if that's all you're doing and not offering any other support, that's not going to do you much good because. Just for the same reason, you're going to assume that that reward system is going to stick in their brain for days, weeks, months, and then they're going to remember that. And that's just not realistic. So then the question, of course, is, well, what do we do? And that's what we talk a lot about in our videos and you know our various podcasts, those practical suggestions. So we we also briefly mentioned that um, when you use this model, it actually improves a lot of things. And there's now beginning to be research showing that. And we re- uh, interviewed a researcher who researched that, Chris, uh, Christy Petrenko. If you guys have been listening to the podcast, great interview and a lot of good information about how this model actually helps. So, can you think of you know a be- a specific behavior that's gone down since you started implementing just revisiting behaviors? What are some of the things that have improved? My for number you? one
1: yeah. improved, yeah, her joy. Yeah. So it's like the the spirit meter. Um, particularly amongst her siblings. I think for us and my goal as her mom is to keep her connected and bonded to her younger brother and sister so that for her forever life, she has these two rocks that will always be there and that understand her and can always support her in the way she needs supported. and And two, that she can support them. I think it's in our yeah. family that bond is critical and, um I have an I my older sister is, has fetal alcohol. She was adopted as well and the bond we have that my parents insisted we had growing up um I see the importance of it and I didn't necessarily get it as a kid and I was frustrated as a kid that they kept making me come back and kept making me face it and um but as an adult um I wouldn't trade it for anything so I hold a lot of value to that. Mm-hmm. Um but when Nate came to us one of my biggest struggles was um and, and our family struggles, was that our oldest she was um, starting to build a lot of resentment and a lot of jealousy and a lot of anger towards her younger brother and sister because developmentally and a lot of skills, they were surpassing her. They were playing appropriately with peers. They were ha- having friends. They were being invited to birthday parties. They were um, her, her younger sister, who's right next to her in age, was starting to read better, do math better, and uh, no matter how hard we worked to make her feel enough, the world was pushing her the other direction. Yeah. And so anytime we would try to lift up the other two, because they deserve praise and excitement just as much as our eldest does, um, her heart would melt. And that melting of a heart would come out in anger and jealousy and rage towards her little brother and sister. And the harder I I kept trying to reconnect them and and rebond them and let's go on adventures, let's do this activity together. The problem was is that everything we were doing was creating more tension and more frustration because no matter what we'd do, if we'd go for a hike, if we'd go do acrobats, if we would color together, they were staying in the lines more. They were going faster. They were more capable with fine motor skills. Everything was just reiterating to our oldest that she wasn't good enough. She wasn't enough. And um, what Nate suggested to us was that we front load her and let her know that she is enough and that when we are going to compliment or encourage brother and sister, it's just because they deserve it too and to really let her know our parenting strategy behind why we give everyone praise yeah. and why everyone deserves praise in our family?
0: Like right before you complimented, right them. before, yeah. yeah.
1: So I, for the first week, I would practice that. I would be really mindful. If we were all sitting down coloring or painting, I would, you know, whisper to her, "Okay, okay, this is when we're gonna, you know, like I'm gonna tell brother and sister that they're doing fabulous, and but just remember, you two are fabulous and you two are enough." And she'd look at me and giggle or give me a high five like you know she was she was in it with me. She was a part of that plan. and with literally within a week that jealousy and rage just shifted away. And not only did uh, her behavior toward her brother and sister change, but it, just her spirit started to come back and her belief in herself started to come back and she realized that she actually was enough in our family and the hard part is when she goes away from our family and she doesn't have someone there front-loading her when all of her peers are passing her. But what our intent is for her family is that when she comes home, it's a place for her to feel safe and to feel enough. And hopefully that can carry her through the hard years that are yeah. that are to come. Yeah. So it was awesome. <laughs> good, 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 good. Yeah.
0: So... um you know, over the next several podcasts, I mean, really constantly, we're, we're trying to bring things back to this neurobehavioral model, um, in our suggestions, of course, you know, I try to use a lot of those specific cognitive skills. So, you know, I mentioned your family in a video about planning because from my perspective as the consultant, the issue wasn't the jealousy or, you know, these emotions toward her siblings. The issue was that she just needs time to process all of this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, You know, by just front-loading her, even just a few seconds before you do the thing, it actually helps her to think. Um, And so we're going to continue to talk about how we kind of balance those things of what's potentially a cognitive skill issue, what's just a limitation due to the brain, how can we support, how can we be proactive. So I I want to talk a little bit about some of the difficulties that a lot of people have. And oftentimes in my work with families, so I work with families, foster families, group homes, I work with pretty much every setting. And what I often see when working with either families or foster families is that parents are great, you know, at trying to adapt the neuro, neurobehavioral model, because frankly, you know, by the time I've get to gotten to them, they've tried all these other things. Mm -hmm. But then it's how do we get that consistently with every adult who interacts with this child? Because Mm -hmm. we have school staff, we have mental health, um, we maybe have caregivers that are, um, you know, provided so. You, and that that is easier said than done. It is not easy at all. So a lot of things that can make it difficult are, you know, just holding on to those old values, you know. And maybe even people compare what they're seeing with a person with FASD to themselves. You know, I, I've been in that position. Here's what I did. Or I've raised other kids and, you know, they were able to do it, so why can't they? And, you know, those thoughts are oftentimes are they are what the obstacle is to people with fasd if we could get everybody just to think of this stuff as a brain thing and to realize that the disability is usually invisible then things will start to improve just by the realization and then hopefully the more we learn about it we can continue to come up with actual practical things that we can do um so we're gonna of course continue to talk about that in future podcasts um well so That's, I think, a good general discussion about the neurobehavioral model. As I said, we're going to be interviewing some people um, who are trainers in this area. So, um, you know, they'll hopefully correct any things that we said that weren't exactly, you know, with their model, but also just learning more practical suggestions. How do we actually apply this idea that behaviors are based upon a brain thing? And how do we, you know, apply it in our everyday life, just living our life with our kids? So, oh, yeah, Jill has something else to say. Go ahead.
1: Okay, so this weekend we were climbing Mount Hood and our oldest is normally amazingly free when we go hiking. And this is the first time we went hiking on a mountain and she was totally falling to peace. We were up a timber line, so we were like up past the tree line. And she was freaking out uh, her behaviors. She was so angry at me, you know, telling me I'm not a good friend. I don't know what kindness means. She would either go way, way ahead or refused to walk at all, and we didn't. We we had come all this way for this adventure, and the littles were all for it. So, um, I basically just sat on a rock with her while the littles and Daddy went up the hill. And she then she wanted to go. Anyways, long story short, I was r- racking my brain the whole time. I'm like, what is going on? And I was trying to get to her, but there was no access to her. she was mm-hmm. so upset. At something that I was, I was like, "Did I feed her? Yes. Does she have water? Yes. Does she have go potty? She just went. I was trying to think what could be going on that's creating this much anxiety with her, especially because this is something she loves to do, adventuring. It's her thing, and uh, nothing, nothing. So we finally get down the mountain. She recuperates from this. Mountaineering meltdown, (laughs) and uh, we just kind of move on from it. The next day, we're in the woods together hiking, and she's just happy go lucky, just her normal adventure self. And we're in the trees this time, and I was like, What happened yesterday? Like, where did you go? And she was laughing about it, and she goes, Mom, you know, there were no trees, and I was like, Yeah, there were no trees, and she goes. Well, it made me feel too big. When I have trees around me, it makes me feel smaller and that feels better. Hmm. And I had known for years that when she's in tight, confined spaces, um, she feels so much better. So she has little tents around the house that she can go in when she's feeling upset. Or, you know, we like put these little blankets around her in the car when she's feeling upset or the classroom and um, and her her weight has always helped. But I had no idea that the sky felt too big for her when she didn't have trees above her hmm. and so it it just remembering to to not just think about the biological things that could be going on but for me to expand my generalization of her feelings of the world and mm-hmm. and how she gets overwhelmed by the world it was a huge reminder to me but so i just want to point that out too that we could be practicing these these models and we can be racking our brain Um, but even at nine years old, I had no clue what was going on with her until the very next day she was able to explain it to me, Mm -hmm. but then I can take that and I can use it to her next time. Now we know. And now we know. So it's okay. It's okay. If you don't know sometimes and you have a meltdown Mm -hmm. on the side of a mountain, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, everyone out there taking care of these babies. It is okay. If you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and end today's podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Yeah, this is awesome.